Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends, number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram, and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy, and of course, our guest, and number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at aol at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me aol. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the URM podcast. One quick little announcement before we get into it. If you notice that the URM podcast hasn't been very frequent lately, that is by choice. Over the past few years, I've been podcasting a lot, a lot, a lot, especially starting with the pandemic. You know, we upped the frequency of URM podcasts and added the Riff Hard podcast. And to be honest, I've just been feeling a little bit burned out on podcasting. And That's not fair to listeners, it's not fair to the guests, it's not fair to anyone, and that's not what I want for any of you out there who get so much out of the URM podcast. So over the past few months, I stepped off the gas a little in order to recharge the battery. The battery is recharged, and the URM podcast is going to resume. First up is someone who is not just a longtime friend of mine. And when I say long time, I mean, I think we're closer to two decades of friendship than one decade of friendship. This person is one of the good guys in the music industry. And his story proves to me that anything is possible in music. Anything is possible. It might seem impossible from an outsider, but if you have the right product or the right offering to the right crowd at the right time, and you really go for it with the right partners, you can pull off the seemingly impossible. So my guest today is Frank Godla, who's a musician, the chief company director and co-founder of the legendary media outlet Metal Injection, the Blasphemy Network, and recently Metal Sucks. Starting out with a passion for metal in the 80s, he's poured his life into the pursuit of championing the progression of metal for now the last 18 years. In between podcasting, hosting website, keeping up to date with everything new in metal, traveling constantly, which we'll get into, and branching out to a brand new division covering Latin American artists. Frank is undoubtedly one of the best informed and hardest working, most inspirational individuals in the industry. All right, let's do this. 
Frank Godlow, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you for having me, Al. It's been so long since I've it seen really you. It really has. Yeah. It really, really has. It's, it's not just because of the pandemic either. It's, it's sad to say. It's just, Actually, where are you living right now? I don't even know. I live in Atlanta. I go back and forth between Atlanta and Milwaukee because my girlfriend and one of my business partners is in Milwaukee, but it's been forever. It seems like Milwaukee is making a, a comeback, actually, with the Metal Fest and everything. I, I've been hearing people possibly moving out there. So that's... Uh, What's wrong with them? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> they don't want to do that. Don't do it. It seems like an all right place. I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. I mean, you know what? Nothing's worse than where I already lived. So the way I see it is um, I will move anywhere for a good reason. And I've already done it. Like, this is not worse than Sanford, Florida. So (laughs) (laughs) it would have to be like really bad to be worse than Sanford, Florida. So I can handle this Milwaukee shit. Yeah, I remember visiting you out there. It was good times, though. There's a good reason to do it. But you know, it was kind of out there in the middle of nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it uh, kind of picks a picture of like middle country sticks type situation, you know, lots of broken down used cars <laughs> and animals that'll eat you. Yeah. Kind of awesome. Weather that'll kill you. Yeah. Oh, well, especially now. Yeah. But what about you? Where are you living? I feel like I don't quite understand your situation right now. I love that. I'm a digital nomad. That's what it's called, which I didn't even know that term, to be honest with you, until I kind of just started doing it and trying to explain to people what I was doing. I didn't realize this was like a movement or a thing. I just, uh, I went through some really hard times during the pandemic and it wasn't even related to, you know, the pandemic itself or quarantining or anything. I, I was just in a really bad spot in life. I fell apart pretty hard. And it's a little hard to go through and, and, and really talk about it and say, but I hit a wall where it was like either I was going to end my life or do something very active about saving myself. And, and that's really what I, I did, you know, and I kind of got in my car and took all the essentials that I needed and just went, you know, I just uh, went cross country. I was hiking a lot at different national parks and camping out of my car and just kind of like getting in touch with nature. And I found myself all the way cross country to LA and I stayed in an Airbnb for, you know, uh, I think it was like five months. And and this was all during the pandemic. And I kind of just realized, I was like, wait, I can just do this. Indefinitely. Yeah. And it like Airbnb and is really kind of like opened up that possibility of living in different spots in the world without you know, feeling uh, like hotels can be really expensive and, you know, but like, uh, Airbnb is the, uh, you know, you're basically living in somebody else's shoes for a minute, you know, for as long as you kind of need or want, and then you move on to another Airbnb spot. So I came back to New York. I donated everything I own. Um, you know, except like a lot of the, you know, mementos and stuff like that. Like I had a lot of posters and my t-shirts I've been collecting since I was nine years old, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wanted to keep all that, uh, in storage. But other than that, like I, I just got rid of everything, uh, took the bare essentials and I'm still at it now, like a, a year and a half later, I'm still Airbnb. So right now I'm, uh, back in New York and I haven't been here in a year now, but I'm back here for a month. Um, then I'm going to head out to, uh, South America for a bit. The thing about being a digital nomad, I've experimented with it to a degree, not maybe not as extreme as you, but 
when I left Florida, I decided I'm not buying a house again for like no plans on it. Uh, and not because I have anything against it, but I already done that. already had a nice house. I know what it's like. I don't want it. I wanted to not really have roots anywhere, just be able to pick up and go. And that's kind of how I've been living my life since URM. Like I've had apartments and spots, but like the amount of time that I've spent at those apartments sometimes would be like come in for three days every six weeks or something. Yeah. There's a side to it that can be very disconcerting for some people or like discombobulating. But at the same time, I think that some people are wired for it. What I've noticed is when I was a kid, I always wanted a life of travel, not of vacations, but like I wanted to do something that involved me moving around a lot where my work would just have me everywhere. It's probably because I grew up with a dad that was all over the place. So touring made perfect sense. And then when I was at the studio in Florida, I was always trying to get the fuck out of there because it was driving me insane to be stuck to one place. So then URM and what I've done since, like the way I designed it keeps me moving all the time. Pandemic was the first time in five years that I slowed down on it. So I, I get it. Like you're probably just wired for it. You know, what's really funny is I think the outcome is pretty much the same for us, but uh, we grew up very differently. Like I, I was the complete opposite. My family was so incredibly poor that vacation was like going to Coney Island, which was two stops away on the train, you know? Mm -hmm. Like we just didn't have money for anything. There was times where, you know, we were stealing food to survive and I was even homeless at one point in my life. So I, I, I have very, very humble, fucked up, you know, beginnings. And I would just dream. I would read books. I mean, like a library card at the time was like my escape. You know, I read books about travel and stuff like that or stories about people traveling. Uh, of course, you know, as a metalhead, way back in the day, I would subscribe to magazines and stuff and, and read about stories, you know, like this new band Emperor, you know, from Norway and you know, this new band at the gates from Sweden. And, and I was just like, in my head, it just felt like a million miles away, this like far off weird land that I can't even like imagine. Cause obviously this is before the internet. You can just like mm -hmm. look it up and see photos or videos, or whatever. And you know, you build this in your imagination, what it looks like. And it just seemed like this magical place that I'll never be able to get to because I'm so poor and I could barely leave the block. That's kind of just made me so obsessed with travel, the idea of travel. And I'm actually, this is what that, uh, the whole tattoo on my right arm is about, you know, it's just like a nautical map and everything. And But you know what though, like lots of people think they want that and regardless of their background, they think they want that. And then they get into a situation where they have that, like, you know, being in a band, for instance, like, you know, that as well as I, that, that first tour is where most bands break up yeah. or start to lose members. Cause in reality- most people are not wired for, for constant travel. Like, I think it's one thing to dream about it and want it, but it's a whole other thing when you actually get it to not only like it, but like rearrange your life to align with that. Well, I, you know, I've been told my whole life that I'm a typical Sagittarius. So I don't know if that makes sense to anybody listening, but I have no idea what that means. But I'm sure some of our listeners do, but, uh, 
just means that I, I can never sit still. Like mm. I'm always on the go or doing something or looking for adventure. You know, I live by adventure and, and different set of rules basically. But I'm also very self-aware and I kind of like check in with myself sometimes. Like I realized before I became uh, a nomad that I was part of this rat race in New York City or maybe not just New York, but really like the US, our, our mentality of like, like climbing and climbing and climbing. And, you know, I climbed this ladder to a place where I had this really expensive New York City apartment and it was super nice. And I was stoked that I, I had it and everything like that. And, but I'm also like, why, you know, what, yeah. what why am I paying <laughs> so much empty. for a fucking four walls, you know, and, and for what? And it just made no sense, you know? So I, completely changed my life. Like sometimes I like to do that just to kind of test myself. I don't think that's something a lot of people do or maybe want to do because they're complacent and where they are. And they, they I th what I find is most people don't like to be uncomfortable. What I find about myself is I like to be comfortable in my uncomfortable nature. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I find comfort in putting myself in a sort of fucked up situation sometimes and really testing myself. And you feel at home in that? I wouldn't say at home, but I feel alive like the adrenaline kind of like you know when i'm when i'm traveling solo through northern africa and i'm like getting robbed which has happened you know like it's just one of those things where it's just like wow this is real life you know like my heart's racing my palms are sweaty it's just uh you know like a really fucked up situation that i i, I survived and got away from but i'm like fuck man that's as I don't know. There's something about it that you you walk away from and you're like, I feel like I just had a real life experience. Well, you did. That. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sure as fuck did. It's interesting you say that about the apartment in New York. This is something that I have, I've like felt guilty feeling this way. Like I had a nice house in Florida, but my first like real, like real success was URM. So in the first few years, it was like, this is awesome. And I got this this apartment in Atlanta, like right in the city on like the top floor of a building. And it was like everything that you'd think you'd want. And it was cool, but I, I was depressed as fuck and it made zero difference whatsoever that I had it. So it was like on paper, it was this very awesome thing. But in reality, after the first day or two of being there, it was just like any place else. And I, I realized how privileged I sound saying this, so, you know, whatever, but, but like, that's just, that's my reality. So, um, you know, you can only, you only have your own reality to base, uh, your opinions and feelings off of, but yeah, like it was a completely empty, meaningless experience to have this thing that I thought I wanted for all this time. Like for all this time, I thought like, if I can get to the point where I can afford like this top level view of a city like, I know that shit's going well, and I got it, and was like, well, I guess that means shit's going well, but I don't give a fuck. It's like, yeah. my brain is still broken. Dude, I, I, I'm i totally there with you, you know? I'm, as I've told you, like, I've come from very humble beginnings, and then, you know, after 18, almost 19 years of doing metal injection, and, and now what, we've, what I've reached and doing all this, and the success, it's just like, I, it doesn't, you know, the success isn't what makes me happy, I don't even know that I am happy. It's just, uh, I guess what you're saying and, and what I'm saying is just that it doesn't matter what you have, what apartment you have, all the, you know, the luxury items or items in general. It's just, 
it's not what's going to make you happy. What I found has made me happy is living experiences, mm-hmm. you know, fulfilling my life with real experiences. And you don't necessarily need money for that. But I mean, it helps, you know, <laughs> it helps. But I think experiences and relationships. Yeah, I can have like a fucking conversation with a friend that will, I don't know, make my heart explode and make me feel like I've had a, I've shared a real experience, you know, something that is meaningful. And that means so much more to me than, you know, I don't know, money or a car or whatever. I don't even care about stuff like that. I don't care about cars and whatever. The thing that I wonder, though, is like that stuff doesn't make me happy. But how much more unhappy would I be if I was failing in my professional pursuits? And I do think that I'd be unhappier. Like, I think I'd be way more unhappy. And so I think that while it doesn't create happiness, it fends off misery to some degree. It doesn't cure depression, but it fends off misery, if that makes sense. But you seem like a tenacious person to me. So like if you weren't doing well in those endeavors, wouldn't you just like shift gears or try harder or figure out a way to? Well, yeah. Yeah. I've done that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we've all failed and managed our way. And I think there's two kinds of people like, you know, people who play a video game and they're not winning. So they throw the control down and walk away. Or somebody who continues to try and, and try and try until they can beat it, you know? Write their own video game. Right. Yeah, even better. Basically. It's an interesting thing because, like, I was thinking about this, too, the other day. You just said you don't care about cars. I couldn't give a fuck less about that stuff. Watches, cars, any of that stuff. Like, I don't have that part of my brain that cares about it. And no offense to anyone who does care about it. If you're into that stuff, cool. Like what you like. When people start talking about that stuff, my brain literally checks out. I couldn't be more bored than when people start talking about cars or watches. And the whole time that this has been happening, like URM and things have been going well, I've been thinking to myself, like, if the whole point of all this, like, how hard I've worked and like everything I've gone through was to be able to put a watch on my wrist. I can't equate those two things together. It doesn't make sense, but to each their own, because I do know that like someone who's like a total watch person and what he tells me is it's not about the watch. It's what the watch represents. Like grew up poor. This watch is a gauge for what I've done. And okay, if that's what it means to you, cool. Sure, I can see that. And as you said, you know, to each their own. That's his way of kind of flexing, I suppose. Mine was definitely Or reminding traveling. himself. <laughs> or, or that. Yeah, mine is traveling for sure. You know, I'm crossing off those countries on my bucket list and having those experiences with natives and, you know, um, that's just how I go about it. So kind of come full circle. That's I guess that's why I travel so much these days and why I went ahead and, and did this to my life. You know, like it, it's just so... I find a much more fulfilling life doing it this way. The music industry is like any other industry. I know that there's things about it that are unique, but if you want to have a lackluster, boring life in music, you can have that at any level of the game. Like you can have a routine bullshit life if if you allow it to happen. So just because you're successful in the music industry doesn't mean that you're enjoying yourself or anything like that. And I think it's important that people take stock of their resources. If they're not happy with how something's going, see what it is that they can do to improve it. So like, for instance, in your particular career, your career does allow you to be 
a digital nomad. And every, not everyone's career allows for that, but yours does, as does mine for the most part. So you have this synergy, I guess, or this alignment between what you want plus your career allows for it. Right. So fucking awesome. Sort of. I really had to maneuver it that way, though. You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, you work in media. I mean, what other person in media does this? As far as I know, none. It's really just something that I pushed for and, and had to like, sh- like put certain things in place to make this possible because most people want an office or stuff like that. And, you know, I opted out of that. We've in metal injections history, we had an office for six months and that was really towards the beginning mm-hmm. of things. You know, me and Rob, we just thought like, oh, well, maybe we'll be more productive if we had an office, you know? Yes, I know. <laughs> Didn't work out that way at all. Did I got an office once, <laughs> like at the beginning of URM. Guess how many times I went to it? Five. Zero. <laughs> I got it. I had an office for six months. And I went to it exactly zero times. Yeah. Tends to happen. You think you want something. It's like, you know, people in New York, they all want a, a place with a backyard, but they forget like how much work it is, the mosquitoes, everything else. And how shitty the weather is here. So it's like, ah, oh, well, you use it like three times a year. Yeah, I understand that there's maneuvering. Of course, there's maneuvering because no matter what, this is a non-standard way of life. Even in media, even in metal, this is not a normal thing. But it is really awesome, though, that your career can be maneuvered into something where this works. Yeah, for sure. I mean, trust me, I'm, I, I don't take it for granted. Every single day, my life is insane like totally fucking insane. It's getting harder and harder to just maintain my schedule because it's so nutty, you know? I mean, like I was just on a flight. This happened yesterday when I was uh, talking to your assistant you work with. I flew from LAX to JFK, got in a cab, went to Merrick, Long Island, picked up a motorcycle, rode two hours to uh, meet up with Max Cavalera at the show last night in Jersey, and then had a ride an hour back home. And I don't know how I was awake for a day and a half and didn't eat anything and just kept going and going, you know, but that's kind of like just one day in the life snapshot, you know, there's been a lot worse than that too, you know, across like from Africa to Mexico. (laughs) I think it's because what you're doing gives you that energy. So that's, I think I was thinking about this because recently when I went to Sweden, okay, so finishing the Doth recording basically led right into finishing this Zach Wild course with like no days off whatsoever. So the whole, everything was like 18 hour days, 18 hour days, nonstop for like months. And then immediately the next day, like after finishing the previous night at like four in the morning at like eight in the morning, I had to go to the airport to fly to New York and then fly to Sweden. And on the flight, I had to watch and make notes on this other eight-hour course that we have that's coming out next year. And so then when I landed, then I got a car and drove three hours from Stockholm to Orebro to get to Fascination Street. And Jens was mixing when I got there. So I just went right into the session and like worked with him till like 10, 11 p.m. But I didn't feel the I didn't feel the pain at all. Like it's what I wanted to be doing. Everything I was doing the whole time gave me the energy. I crashed out afterwards, but I feel like it's the same. It's like the same thing. Like you're doing the stuff that gives you the energy to like make it through shit like that because it's cool. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked on still, you know, after all these years, I'm still stoked on what I do. I'm very fortunate for what I do. Uh, I never take that for granted, as I said, you know, because I did have jobs before all this. Obviously, I had jobs that I hated, where I hated my life, you know, and I wanted to change it. And I think back on those times a lot, not out of nostalgia, but I just like to think about how I got here. You know, like to, it, it allows me to be grateful for where I am today, you know thinking about like the days where I went to eight hours of a job that I hated and then ran home to work another eight hours on metal injection, mm -hmm. you know, that, that didn't pay a damn thing. But I did that for years and years and years until it became my full-time job, you know? And if it wasn't for that, that drive, you know, I wouldn't have this today. You definitely wouldn't because what you pulled off is next to impossible. It is like what you guys did with metal injection and blast beat and all that is like not normal. It's <laughs> fucking inspiring too. I appreciate that. I've definitely watched a lot of different uh, companies much bigger than us that have a lot more money than us try and fail, continue to, you know, today there's obviously more, I feel like there's more metal media out there today than there ever has been, you know, mm -hmm. you know, big or small, whether there's big companies behind it or not, there's just so many of them. And we are very fortunate to have what we have. And I think a lot of it is our drive in it, our continued drive in it, you know, and, and the staff that I have working with me, they're all great. And, you know, I'm still out there, man, every fucking day, just, just listening to metal bands and, you know, going to all the festivals and checking out new bands and, and meeting people. I mean, at this point, it's, it gets really hard to remember everyone. There's like, I mean, yeah, how could you? So many, dude. It's so, so many. But it's definitely a crazy life, but I would recommend it. You know, I, I love what I do. I think that what's really important, in my opinion, for listeners to glean from this is it really is possible to pull off the seemingly impossible if you're willing to pay the price, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what motivational speakers talk about, you know, you get out what you put in, or, you know, whether they're like personal trainers or business coaches and stuff, you know, but I will say there is some fortune and luck in there, you know, like, well, yeah, for sure. Also, we cornered a market before it existed, you know, you know, we had that foresight to like, say like, oh, how do we put our silly TV show that we only had on Brooklyn cable access television and get it on the web? And, you know, we did that before YouTube existed. And, um, it was expensive and hard and to figure out, but we've always been that trial and error type of people, you know, just like by the seat of our pants, mm -hmm. trying to figure it out, DIY all the way, you know, and we learned all the mistakes that, and, and I feel that that's the biggest value that you can really get in life as well is, you know, we, we were talking before about failures and stuff. And I think those are so important because they train you for successes, you know? Absolutely. We had to fail and had to fail and had to make those mistakes over and over again to know what worked. And I think we were willing to be those people who, you know, kind of like a, a pro skater would, you know, like they, if they fall down, they don't walk away from it. They just get up and try again. And that's the kind of mentality that we had that got us to where we are now. You know, I think the cornering a market that didn't even exist, that's huge because that's what we did too. And the thing is, I'm not saying that no one could sneak up on us, but it's going to be really fucking hard in metal to sneak up on us because we went so hard at the beginning to establish 
something in metal that did not even remotely exist. And, you know, by the time anybody had like realized what was going on, we were like entrenched. And I, I think that that's, that is exactly what I saw you guys do back in the day. That's what I've thought is so impressive about it was, yeah, back then, like, I remember you guys coming to shows. I'm not sure that people know how long I've known you guys, but I've known you guys since forever, like over 15 years now. So I remember... Yeah, I want to say like 2005 or something. Yeah, over 15 years. Back then, there was metal media, but it wasn't like you guys were doing. It was either big time, like on MTV or something, or it was Blabbermouth, which is just like, you know, written news, or really, really shitty video interviews. The shittiest you can possibly imagine. (laughs) There was nothing quite like the way you guys were doing it, where it was like people from the community who were actually fun to hang out with just coming out and hanging out. It was a whole different thing. And it didn't seem like a big deal back then because you guys were just hanging out and part of, I guess, the circle. But like, if you think about it, like if you zoom out and you look back, there was literally nothing else like it for a long time, for a really long time. I think by the time people started ripping you guys off, you guys were so established that it was pointless. Uh, I mean, you know, that doesn't stop them from trying. I still see people try to rip us off every day. But <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, we, again, we were just uh, kind of doing, some, we were trying to fill a void that didn't exist. And, and, you know, like how like some bands say they started their band because they wanted to write music that they wanted to listen to. You know, we were doing that with our, our website, you know, editorial, media, and video. It might have started as a TV show uh, and us hanging out and doing video interviews and stupid sketches and whatnot, but it really went through so many different iterations. You know, we added in the news section and then the review section and then editorials and features. And I mean, now it's like a whole different beast, you know, than what it started out as. And I, Again, a lot of it is, you know, looking at the metrics and seeing what works and making those mistakes and learning from them and moving on and trying new things. I always said, I think if, if my forte in metal media is probably just having a well of ideas, you know, and, and coming up with new th- and, and being the first. I mean, like, I'm still the first to do a lot of things. I mean, doing Slay at Home, you know, that was like a, a massive undertaking and if it failed, I wasted tons of time and resources, you know, but it did really, really well. And uh, I'm stoked on that. I'm stoked that it, it resonated with the metal community. How long would you have let it go? How long would you have let it go before cutting it? Do you have like a general rule about like determining when something is a dud? I mean, I guess that's more of a personal thing. Like it depends on the what we're talking about. Like different projects require more time and attention than others. So it's like if you're pouring something in and it's really kind of overtaking your life, you want to make sure that it's actually working, you know? Something like on the record, for instance, an idea that I had around for a while and then I wound up pulling it out in 2012. That really kind of changed the game for what we were doing at Metal Injection too because we were doing silly interviews and stuff like that. And it was the first time I think that we like took like a serious slant. It was like a, a mini series that focused on the changes within metal 
you know, how the internet has changed what we do. Like there was a whole episode about that. And it's kind of like newer day uh, Netflix series that you see, like these mini series. But I, I wound up doing this in 2012 and it wound up getting written up in newspapers and won an MTV award and all this other stuff. And it was the first time I really thought like, wow, okay, like something I thought of outside of like the initial, you know, starting metal injection. But it was the first time it was just like this project that took me, you know, three months or four months or whatever to, to you know, conceptualize, film, edit, and then get out there, kind of shifted gears, you know, for what we were doing. And since then, it's just all about, I'm always like in competition with myself. I'm like, well, could I do something bigger and better next time, you know? And um, it's it gets a little hard, you know, to 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 think those up. Yes. And but you know, like kind of like a band who is trying to write their twelfth record, you know, or could they still write a meaningful song that's relevant and still going to speak to their fans and still have something catchy that people want to hear? You know, there's all the. I, but at the same time, you really shouldn't worry so much about that. You should just try to, you know. Do what you want to see, you know, create what you want to see, create what you want to hear and uh, hope for the best. But I don't know. I, I think in terms of like a time stamp, it's um, I don't know I, if we try a new section and it doesn't work after, say, like six weeks, you know, within the metrics and like I, I would just pull it, you know. Yeah, makes sense. So it's like give it enough time to establish itself but not so much time that it's like beating a dead horse. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. 
So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Does the prospect of topping yourself, do you lose sleep over that? Because I know that like, I know that every single year when I look at what we pulled off, I get this pit in my stomach about how in the fuck am I going to do better than this? Because there's so many things that happen every year that are like the biggest thing I've ever done or like that took years to put together that it's like, well, how am I going to repeat this? Like if this thing took five years to put together, how am I going to do that again next year? Did I empty the clip? Basically, (laughs) am I done? But then I never am. All I do is just get to work. That's really all there is to it is get back to work. Also with, when it comes to content creation, you know, I mean, they move so fast, right? And we need an update on the site every 40 minutes. And it's wild how, you know, we have to keep on going and going and going. So we have things being worked on that are long format and take a long time simultaneously with things that, you know, like news updates, obviously that have to be up every few minutes. And hopefully between the two, like you make some sort of impact with people, you know? It's really unfortunate that sometimes the things that take so long, they don't do as well. <laughs> you know, like I could say, I could yeah. make a video that take like a month or two months and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so sick. And then you put it out and it's just like, oh, okay, well, you know, I've got like 40,000 views or something. And then something you did as a joke, you know, got like a million views. And he did it in like two minutes. And, and that's so frustrating sometimes. It's the same with songwriting. On the production end of things, it was the same. You'd work with these bands that like are glorified local bands, like local bands with a record deal. Like if you heard their pre-pro, you'd be shocked that these bands are big, but they are. And this garbage that you have to like mold that they didn't work hard on at all charts in the Billboard Top 20. And then you have these other bands that are like fucking, you know, the most elite of the elite of the elite musicians and like so much fucking care goes into it. And it's like, it doesn't fail, but uh, it doesn't even scratch the surface. And I've seen that many times. I don't mean that like great musicians go undiscovered or something. I don't really buy that too much, but I just mean that like you never can tell, you can never predict what it is that's going to pop off with the public and Oftentimes, it's going to be the thing that you're like, that you didn't think of, basically, or that you didn't put that much thought into that you just kind of did. And it is frustrating. But what I have like learned to kind of accept or like a philosophy or just an understanding, I think, for me, is that the amount of time you spend on something doesn't equal its value, even though we're wired to want something that we spend more time on to be more valuable, the two aren't linked. So just because we killed ourselves for months on something, that doesn't make it more valuable. All it means is we killed ourselves for months on it. The amount of time and effort we put into something does not equal what it will mean for other people. I feel like once I started to really just accept that, my anxiety and frustration went down considerably. You're absolutely right about that. And I completely agree with you. You know, and, and I think it gets even worse as time goes on because we are also in a, in a time in, in a world where people are now evaluating their work with likes, you know, and 
stuff like that. And I think that's like a terrible way of, of looking at or gauging, you know, the worth of something for sure. But it's what we got. <laughs> yeah. It is a terrible way to do it, but what is the other way to do it? Well, I'm just saying when it comes to your own personal work, you shouldn't look at it like that. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm, asked, I'm like, of course you need the metrics to know like where you stand and where like you stand against others or how others are doing or whatever else. But, you know, if you put four months into something and it got whatever, you know, a hundred views, a hundred likes, but you're still fucking proud of that. Hell yeah, dude. You know, like be proud of that. I think that's awesome. Like you didn't spend four months wasting your time. You did it making something you're proud of. And there's there is no replacing that. No, there is no replacing that because just kind of like we were talking about with uh, cars and apartments and all that stuff, the outer success of something you worked on isn't going to change its meaning for you. If something got a million likes or something, that's cool and all, but if you're not proud of it, that's not going to make you proud of it. It's going to make you think, cool, it got a million likes, but it's not going to change the meaning of the thing in my experience. The one thing though that I have noticed is over the years, the things that I have worked really hard on that have not resonated with people that I am proud of, I feel like that's a good lesson too. Like, I feel like it's important for me to understand why those things didn't resonate. Like for instance, the Doth self-titled record, nobody gave a fuck about that one. And we worked really fucking hard on it. Really, really hard. And so for a long time, I had this like, well, fuck you, everyone feeling about it. But then I just started thinking, what about it made it not resonate? And I have some, I have some ideas and uh, stuff I won't repeat. For instance, it was mastered super quietly. The drums are raw as fuck. I'm just not sure that that's exactly how DAS should be presented to the world. And the proof is in the pudding, basically. And it doesn't matter how hard I worked on it. The presentation was fucked. And that led to the results that it led to. And that doesn't mean that I'm not proud of uh, the work that went in, but it's a good it's a good lesson to see how it does, see if people care, see if they resonate, and then at least analyze it. Doesn't mean that it should sway you one way or another. If it does sway you, this should be, you know, you should consciously be swayed. But it's good to understand, I think. Have you ever considered re-releasing it with a new master? Yeah, like, and have it sound the way it should sound? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it might be a good experiment, you know, to see, like, if something like that would change whether or not it resonates with people. You know, but I've seen bands do stuff like that all the time. Opeth wasn't thrilled with some of their stuff, so they had it redone, which is super silly to me. Like, the, the originals were perfect. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Deliverance Damnation, right? Yeah, those remixes. The thing is, I agree that the originals are perfect fucking masterpieces, but those remixes are pretty fucking great too. And they're a completely different vision for the songs. And if that was burning a hole through Michael's head the entire time, like this is not what this record's supposed to sound like. Like it's kind of back to what we were saying about the success is not going to change the meaning of it for you. So if that record, those two records were not what he wanted them to be, then more power to him. I guess kind of like the Demu Borgir remix of Puritanical, you know, that's a record that was foundational for me. Like when I first heard Puritanical, it changed my idea of of extreme metal. Like I, I always thought that like whenever people talked about Cradle of Filth, I always imagined that's what they would sound like, but that's not what they sound like. Then I heard Demo and was like, that's what I thought it should sound like. And 
so the idea of remixing that album is like, why are you fucking with perfection? But then I heard the remix and it's like, okay, it sounds like previous era Demo Borgir. It has a whole different feel to it. It's like way more keyboard heavy. It's like way more like ambient. And if I didn't know the original mix and just heard it independently, I'd probably love it. And so 20 years or so where they've been living with a record that isn't what their vision was, I guess. I understand why fans are like, why the fuck did you do it? But uh, I get why they did it. Well, I mean, for, you know, us fans who've been there with Demu and Opeth for so long, like for sure it's, it's or, or even, you know, if you wind up doing this, the Doth fans will have known that piece of work a certain way for so long and, and just resonate with that, whether they liked it or not, whatever, but like they just know it one way and to hear it's done a different way is going to, it's going to be a little bit jarring, you know what I mean, to uh, to hear some of your favorite music like done differently. So I understand both sides. I really do. Like I, I think that if you a piece of work was colored or tainted by somebody, you know, that is the thing about working in music. Like you are at the mercy really of, of like other people working with you, you know, your mixer, your producer, your master. If it's a live show, the, the you know, the speakers, the live sound guy you know it's it's sometimes like it's not a bad show because of how you play but because of how it sounded you know yeah and you just have to live with it yeah i mean i've i've seen that happen to a lot of bands i've seen you know i go backstage and bands are so upset i thought it was a killer set because like they played every note perfectly and put so much heart in it and they were like next to crying because the sound was so fucking bad you know and i'm like yeah but people will understand and like no they won't you know, like they'll, they'll blame us. Cause like, they don't ever think to like take it out on the sound guy or something like that. They're like, no, oh, that band just sucks. You know? Cause people are very quick to judge sometimes. Yes, they are. You know, what's even more interesting is when you see a band get off stage and one person is elated and the other person is throwing bottles against the wall. <laughs> they were, they played the same show, yeah, but a completely different experience. Yeah, that's that's wild, but it's, you're absolutely right. That happens all the time. Just the subjective nature of it is what I think what I'm referring to is just all you have is your own subjective interpretation or experience with the thing. And so like if it's negative, it's negative. That's all there is to it. Um, like when you play a show, how do you usually gauge? Is it like the crowd reaction? Is it trying to get every note flawlessly? Like where do you gauge your performance? It's like this overall feeling, like uh, it's more like the connection, like did I get into it completely and forget the world and completely connect with the audience? Like were we on the same page? And if so, I don't give a fuck about notes or accuracy. I want there to be that next level experience. And if that's not there, then I start to feel really weird super self-conscious and like insecure. Then I start to care about the notes and stuff, but like those shows where there's just this, like, it's almost spiritual, like this bond between you and the crowd and the music. When those shows happen, you might miss notes, but then it really doesn't matter. I love that. That's perfect, man. Yeah. I would, I would hope that more or all 
musicians want to get there, you know? I know that's not true for everybody though. You know, I've, I've asked that question to many friends and- You had to have experienced it though. I think that's part of it is like, you kind of won't get that until you've experienced it. It's one of those things. Like I remember watching A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica back in the day. And I feel like Kirk Hammett was talking about the energy transfer between audience and musician. And when I was like 15 and hearing him talk about that, I was almost tuning out while I was talking about it. Like, I just didn't really get it totally. It wasn't till I experienced it, it like takes you completely out of, I don't want to say it takes you out of reality, but it like alters your reality to almost like this uh, heightened flight or fight mode where like nothing else exists and you can't like simulate that. You can't think your way into it. You can't really rehearse for it. It just happens. And it's like this involuntary thing. So I think sometimes maybe people haven't experienced it. And then if they haven't experienced it, you can't expect them to prioritize that. Once they've experienced it though, I think then it's a different conversation. For sure. And, you know, maybe that is that guy who walked off the stage elated. And then there's, you know, the guy throwing the bottle is fixated on the snare hit that the drummer missed in the third song and this, you know, <laughs> second chorus. People get really wrapped up over certain things, you know, when you play live. It's, and I've had it both ways. You know, I've definitely had my share of shows that blew me away. And I just felt, I just felt the energy, nothing but. And then there's shows where like I had too much anxiety going in and I just fixated on not fucking up. And then of course that made me fuck up and then it's just quicksand, you know? Yeah. And that doesn't mean you played badly or anything. No, I'm just fixated on that one fucking tiny mistake out of 40 minute set that ruined my experience. And what's interesting too, though, about that is just because you had that experience doesn't mean the audience did. Or doesn't mean that every member of the audience was right there with you. So like, even if I'm talking about this like energy transfer and this connection thing, it could all just be in my head too. It could be that I'm feeling that and nobody else is, but uh, I can't know that. All I know is my experience. And I know that like when I've been in that mental state that you're talking about, like the going in with too much anxiety and then hyper fixating and then getting pissed off about this and that. And then like, it's a shitty, it's a shitty show. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And like I said, I've, I've had it every way. And I found that like, just trying to calm myself before I play is, or really do anything is uh, the best way to go. Like you're, when you go in level headed to something, you know, a performance or getting on stage, whatever, you know, cause I am a person who always suffered from anxiety and depression and stuff. And, and I just have over the years, over my 40 years have kind of managed ways to know myself and uh, help myself get through things, you know? How do you deal with situational anxiety? Like what we're talking about, you're about to go on stage, your anxiety's high. How do you manage it? Yeah, usually I'll take like a few minutes to myself. I thought you were about to say, usually I take lots of drugs. No, 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 no. No, I take a couple of minutes to myself. I mean, being alone is like a really big part of my life and, and like wait, because I, I think as I was saying before, like life's just nuts and like there's always so many people around me. I find that like sometimes an escape, even to the bathroom, like, like I don't necessarily have to go to the bathroom, but it's a good place to escape people sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't have a dressing room or whatever else, but just sit there, sit in a the mirror, look at yourself and breathe. And 
kind of center yourself, you know, and then go out and do it and you're, you're fine. At least for me, that's, that's something that works for me. Breathing, kind of centering myself. I also try to meditate every day and uh, work out as well. That definitely changes my entire mood and, and focus. I was thinking about a conversation I had with Nurgle the other day, actually. I don't know why this just popped into my head. It was like a conversation we had on OzFest in 2007. Some conversation, who knows where. We were talking about prep time for live. And we were both on the same page that like in an ideal situation, you'd have like a full hour where like you can warm up and you can like get your head in the right space and like do some exercise and like connect with the band and like there's this whole process and ritual almost but what if that doesn't happen and i remember him saying i can still do it in 5 minutes it's not ideal but i can get myself there in 5 minutes i just do all that stuff quickly i remember him saying so like even so it's like regardless of the regardless of the circumstance he is going to do whatever he can to get into that mental state. And he's got, and I'm sure it's far more developed now because, you know, he's been at it that much longer. But like, you know, he already had like a set of techniques and practices that got him from every day to fucking conquer the you know, front man of behemoth mode, like within five minutes. I mean, everything in life is practice, or, yes. you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, the, even even something as, as, I don't want to say simple, but something like that where people, most people don't really think about that, you know, the, that life or that part of a performer's life, that is something that even they have to practice, you know, beyond the, the writing and the practicing their music, their instruments or whatnot. That, that's something very real, you know, um, that they have to go through. The transition between regular life to conquering an audience that's a major major shift in mentality i think yeah and it's you know it, we're we're applying this to metal musicians but it really goes for anyone out there i mean like i have to kind of mentally prep myself when i do interviews even you know mm -hmm. like it's just i, I do them so, i've done so many in, in my years you know but it's still something that i have to um at least for five minutes, just kind of like get myself together and stop doubting myself or whatever else and then just go with it, you know? Yeah, like I know that if I'm pitching my business partners on something, I will prep the shit out of it. I will go through so much stuff just so that when we have that meeting, I'm 100% in the meeting and I'm like in the conversation and like can just flow with it and like really like like I can take this idea that is so meaningful to me and powerful and help them feel that. But the only way that I can really get there is I have to be there, you know? And in order for me to really be there, there's like a mental exercise I have to go through. And it takes a little while. Like it involves like thinking of everything wrong with the idea, what they're going to think is wrong, even if it's not wrong what will happen if this goes right all kinds of stuff i have to like really like spell it out for myself however you know i don't always have that luxury uh, sometimes i have to like convince people of something and i didn't have the time to put that together and i will still take 5 minutes and do like a shorthand version on a notepad of that stuff just for my own sake not even if i never look at it again like it's for my own sake getting my my head in the game basically 
I totally know what you're talking about. And I've actually done, you know, certain pieces of content and videos where I, I was just too close to it, you know, or even parts of the site and, and things that we're developing. I'm just too close to it. And I need to literally put myself in a headspace where I, I <laughs> sounds silly saying this, but I, I would literally walk outside for a couple minutes and then come inside, sit at my desk and pretend I'm somebody else looking at this for the very first time. And I would like method act in a, in a way, you know, where I'm somebody else looking at this piece for the very first time. What, what are my thoughts? And, and then I would just start making notes uh, on that to change, you know, because sometimes you are, you're way too close to an idea, to, you know, a pitch or whatever else that you need to really kind of just zoom out. And I think we've said that a couple of times in this podcast so far, but like zooming out, there's something really powerful about that. You know, just, just kind of stop just stop, zoom out for a second and, and things become clearer sometimes. Yeah. Zoom in when it's time to do the, you know, the heavy lifting and stuff. And I think about it in terms of tracking, like on some of the new Doth stuff, like there's eight rhythm guitars happening at the same time, like playing <laughs> the exact same thing. And in order to get it sounding like two guitars, there can be no wiggle room between the takes. They have to be the exact same thing. And that means I need to be able to play it the same way over and over and over and over again, which means really getting inside of the riff. But you zoom out. Is the riff even good? Because like, if it's not, what the fuck am I doing? Like practicing it enough to get it that tight. Like it's pointless to even fuck with it. So without zooming out and like asking yourself, is this even worth pursuing? Like the whole zoomed in experience, you know, like it's only, there's only a point in doing that if you've zoomed out and still give it the okay. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the way, I mean, everything you showed me of the new Doth is so fucking amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm look, really looking forward to it. So thanks. I appreciate that. A lot of work has gone into uh, bringing that back from the dead. Yeah, I'm stoked, man. I was always a big fan, as you know. Um, so I definitely think it's time, and I'm, I'm, we're definitely stoked over here at Metal Injection and Metal Sucks. So I appreciate that. You know, it's one of those things where I thought I was over it, and I tried to be over it, but like the way yeah. it went down, <laughs> never like as the years went on, like I got more and more pissed, and it like. A normal person would have just been like, okay, that didn't work out, move on. But like, I just could not let it go. Like, it was like, this is, I know that this band um, had the stuff of greatness in it. And just through like bad decisions, bad chemistry, bad, just whatever, it didn't really work out right. But like, I have a really good track record for making shit work that I feel strongly about. And, uh, and I'm not used to shit not working out that I feel that strongly about. So it kind of never, like it never died with me. And so when I decided to bring it back, I decided to bring it back like full force, like every single thing that, uh, that I may have like caved on in the past or like let go in the past, I'm not letting go now. It's exactly what I always wanted it to be. So it better be fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm a fucking idiot. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure on there. No, I, well, I love it so far. So congratulations on something that's not even done yet. <laughs> Thank you. 
How are you doing with drums these days? Well, I, I so during Slay at Home. Such a good idea, by the way. Thank you. You know, it's like once again, talking about like ideas and it was early in the pandemic. It was like maybe a month after like everybody went into quarantine. Um, I think it was Warner Brothers, the label or something like that. They wound up putting uh, ads out everywhere for this virtual concert. It was a virtual festival. And, you know, like everybody, like millions of others, I wound up signing on, you know, the day of, and it was the most pathetic thing I've ever seen in my life. Like they, all it was, was pre-recorded stuff, you know, like Foo Fighters from South by Southwest in 2010 and, and, you know, whatever, like it it was just all pre-recorded shit, basically a playlist on YouTube and they wound up making money on this and they weren't even transparent about the money that they were making because they were selling merchandising and all this other stuff and, you know, pre-tickets and the entire thing just reeked to me of a really fucking shit corporate move. So I was just like, I can do this better and I can do this honest. So that's where Slay at Home was born. I wound up contacting so many people, you know, I mean, after, uh, like I said, almost 20 years of doing this, I've, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of my heroes and work with them. And uh, I just started reaching out and saying, hey, you know, like, would if I were to do this thing, like, could your band maybe send, submit something if you guys like record it all separately and, you know, put it together, we'll mix and edit and everything. Um, so it became... Everybody started saying yes and yes and yes. And then I started putting covers together. And then that was all yeses. And then trying to figure out who's going to be on these covers and, you know, work. I was drumming on a bunch of them too. Um, so it was very overwhelming, you know. And there, were, as I mentioned earlier, there's just a lot going on in my life at the time that uh, had me in the hospital, you know, uh, kind of regularly. And I was just having like severe panic attacks. Um, but I, I just powered through it, you know, and, and, um, no matter how many panic attacks I had, like I, it would just, it honestly would kind of ruin the day, but then I would have to wake up the next day and get right to it. Um, yeah, keep on going. Cause I had this vision of, of, you know, this thing that was going to happen and it was a virtual festival and it was 100% all, you know, recorded stuff for this festival, you know, like I wasn't taking, you know, bullshit trackings and live shows or whatever else and like everybody came forward with like something that they actually created and and i i personally like edited a lot of it and i hired a mixer to work with me on, on mixing a lot of that mikhail he's a great dude so we we wound up getting this thing done and i it was funny because well it's not funny i mean i i finished it like an hour before it went live <laughs> funny how that works and like, I mean, it, I was cutting it so fucking close and the stress level that like, dude, I, I lost years of my life just putting this thing together, you know, but it went over super well. It raised $200,000 in charities. And it was just something that like really resonated with metalheads all around the world. And I, that to me was kind of the the biggest and proudest thing was the, uh, the community that was behind it, like all the comments and we had, you know, the live chat room and everything and people checking in from Japan and Germany, Australia, you know, Europe, US, Mexico, literally everywhere in the world just tuning in for this thing. And, and I, I forget, at one point I looked it up, it was, it was like almost 200 countries, you know, and, and 
I was just like, fuck, this is, yeah, I was so stoked on that, you know, just to have the idea of people from 200 different countries just coming and watching something together from around the world, you know? So I don't know. I, I was really stoked on it and it did really well. Um, but I got to drum a lot because of that, you know, I was doing a lot of covers with a lot of my friends slash heroes. So, and that's always awesome. You know, outside of that, I've done a couple of, uh, shows and so like silver tomb, which some of the type of negative guys, I, I've done some fill in spots for them, but not much, man. Like, uh, it's just one of those things where four years ago I had three bands <laughs> and then they all seem to kind of you know, wither away, like through stuff, you know, so uh, with Mika's murder, my vocalist slash, uh, guitar player, he, uh, got a job offer that he couldn't refuse. Um, it was for Apple and, uh, you know, they had to relocate him to San Francisco and that kind of put a hiatus on our band right away, you know, which is fine. We always said real life first, you know, and you know, he kind of went a different way with it. So that band still has been on hiatus now for four years and, you know, the others kind of, they went different ways about it. So I've really had nothing. And that that's another reason I think that like this whole nomadic life thing makes sense right now. You know, I don't have a place to kind of go back to, you know, like there's no jam room, there's no band or anything. If I did have one and I want one, trust me, like there's not a day that goes by where I realized you know how we were talking about like happiness, true happiness and stuff. That is something that's missing from my life big time. Like I, I definitely need to get back into playing because it, it fulfills a part of my life that nothing else possibly can. I completely understand. I was thinking about this. The only thing on earth that I do where I lose reality in a good way is writing music. Like that's the only thing I can do where I can sit down and I wake up and it's 12 hours later and something awesome happened. Like literally every other thing on earth doesn't do that for me. So getting back into writing music, it was like, fuck, how did I not do this for so long? What is wrong with me? And now I'm like determined to not stop again because uh, like this whole like part of me has just been inactive. It's uh um, I'm lucky that my brain was able to create cool shit in the meantime um, and to like keep things going. But uh, fuck, never doing that again. <laughs> you know, so I, I've, um, especially because of Slay at Home, I learned, you know, how to use DAWs and um, I bought an uh, e-drums, an e-set and uh, picked up TuneTrack to replace the sounds and everything. So I can get like some solid recordings going. I did make a record actually. It was called a death metal record called Night Soil with my good friend, Nick MD. We did that right before the pandemic and we kind of finished it during, you know, the whole quarantine period. Of course, that's on top of everything else going on. But we didn't have a vocalist. Like we, we filled out everything else. We did guitar, drums, uh, bass. And it was really him sending me tracks and I was kind of playing like a Lego set you know, like like taking his tracks and like forming songs and writing drums to it and everything else. And uh, he would just send like a block of like an hour long block of riffs that I was just cutting up and creating songs out of basically. It came out to be this band called Night Soil and we didn't have a vocalist. So once again, I just enlisted more friends. You know, I, I called on Trevor Sternad to, to sing a song and Dave Davidson and, you know, um, James from Ghost 
basically every song features a different vocalist on there. So that was really cool. You know, we talked about maybe messing around with like another EP or something, but ultimately it was kind of a weird project because, well, first of all, I'd never done anything like that where it was like we were completely separate. You know, I was doing this by myself really. And I even tracked the vocals and everything. And then Will Putney mixed and mastered it. But it it didn't feel like a band. You know what I mean? Like uh, I'm the kind of guy that needs to be in a room with dudes working shit out to feel good about it you know mm-hmm. it and like I've, I've tried to write stuff uh you know my own solo stuff as well and i don't know i keep hitting these walls and it just doesn't i mean it sounds like you have a great time doing that you know and you can do that yeah i was just thinking how like i love collaborating with people but i am perfectly content by myself for just writing some part of the process i have to do that and then bring other people in but like I I feel like something's missing if I don't get to do that. We're shortchanging the music if if like I haven't had my like alone time with it. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of the opposite, man. Interesting. I really really need that camaraderie or or like bouncing ideas, and I I love arguing about a fucking note for half an hour <laughs> in a song that probably nobody else is going to notice because it's that's the kind of passion I think that drives me or us, you know, or the project to, to kind of move forward. Yeah. I don't know. I, I always thought of like music. I, I envy that. I really do. I envy the people who can just sit there by themselves and write songs. You know, I'm not that person. I need to finish the thought though. Like I never, ever consider it complete until the other people have done their thing. Anything that I've just written on my own is unfinished. It's not music yet if it's just me so like for me the collaboration is super important actually i feel like that's what takes it beyond me and makes it like an actually awesome piece of music is when you do bring the other people in and let them shine and do their thing and all that i just need to do my thing first so i i need both but i completely i i get it if it's not like your thing then what i think was important is that you know that about yourself because then you can create situations that work best for you. Oh, yeah. Going back to what we were saying before, but I am very self-aware. And I think that, you know, you have to kind of take inventory sometimes on, on who you are and how you feel about things so that you can play to your strengths. I became good friends with the guys in Typo. And like, I would always hear these stories about Peter. My takeaway from a lot of it is how genius he was of a writer, first of all, but how he was so honest about his capabilities, you know? And he would lean on the other members to kind of really fill out the parts that he couldn't, you know? And I, I love that that humbleness, you know, to his bandmates in that. And I, th- I think there's an important message there about trust, you know? Absolutely. When you were collaborating with all these great musicians, what was that like for you? Did that feel band-like or was it because you know that those dudes have their own bands or whatever, it felt disconnected? Very disconnected because, first of all, I'm working with David Vincent on one track while I'm also working with Dave Davidson on another track, while I'm working with Alex Skolnick on another track and Kenny Hickey on another track. And everybody works completely different, you know? They want to do their way completely different. And it was awesome because I got insight 
into how everybody works. You know, it's just so knowledgeable to kind of be in that experience where I'm like, oh shit, like I'm learning how my, all my favorite (laughs) musicians do their thing, you know, and get in the moment and do whatever. But it was kind of disconnected first and foremost, because I wasn't maybe in the same room with them, you know, and, and we, a lot of this was like phone calls and emails and, you know, sharing transfer files or whatever else. And, um, you know, uh, that's just personal. Like, you know, I, I think there's something about me making music next to somebody. Like that's where it feels like, all right, this is something happening. You know, <laughs> when I'm transferring files or whatnot, it just feels sort of disconnected to me. Yeah, I, I totally understand. You know, it's interesting because again, this is music is such a personal subjective thing. Um, the new Doth has a bunch of features. Like there is a core lineup. There's Krim, there's Jesse Zaretti, there's Sean Z. But then there's also a bunch of guests. There's certain elements of the lineup that I either am not planning on settling on one person or I just haven't found the person yet and I'm not going to just like add someone in. And so in the meantime, having really amazing people fill that role. But then thing is, for me, what's really cool about it is make it is like having it still retain the DNA of Doth and still be 100% Doth, even bringing those people in. I can't mention the names on the podcast because we're going to announce them later. To me, what was really cool about it was like, if you have a soloist who's not in the band, who's well-known in another band, he's not going to join the band. How do I create a part, like if I understand their style, first of all, I'm only inviting people in who I think their style would work. But if I bring them in on a guest solo, the challenge is on me to create a part that they can play over that will sound totally organic to the band and the song to where it doesn't sound like their band. Like it still sounds like them, but like a natural part of the song in this band. Um, And to me, that's a really fun challenge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, there, and there's something to be said about those people, you know, the guest people who sound like themselves uh, no matter where they are. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, there's some musicians out there that, I mean, everyone has their own unique thing, but there's some people who their their sound is just so defined. Yeah, I think of like, like Andy LaRock, you know, yeah. playing a solo in Slaughter of the Soul by At the Gates. It was like, clearly it's all At the Gates. And then he comes ripping out a solo and be like, fuck yeah, that's Andy LaRock, man, you know? Yeah, there, there's a lot of personality in somebody's playing that transfers. And I think that's a, you know, to, for the greats, like the great players, that the, there's personality in there. And uh, that's pretty amazing. But they know how to work with the song. They know how to make the song better. That's part of why they're great, I think. Yeah, and it's also, you know, the foresight of the band as you are, you know, to to see those moments where it's like you can have so-and-so play right here and it would be perfect, you know, because you can already hear that. I envy that too, you know, like uh, songwriters who can see the big picture way before it's finished. I feel like I'm actually better at that than playing. Like that's, uh, that's what I've always been best at, like way better than playing. Like, uh, I always need to work with virtuosos to make up for my limitations playing, but I've always been good at the bigger picture stuff is like understanding how it all works together and creating basically a stage for them to shine on. Like, I find that fun, like fun and fulfilling actually. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. So you, you think of yourself a better songwriter than a player? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I'll never be a virtuoso compared to the people that I'm working with now or have worked with in the past. Like people are aware, aware of Emil, you know, like that dude is like one of the greatest guitar players on earth. Like there's no world in which I could even come close to how he plays, regardless of even if I practice five times as much as him. Like there's n- no world which that would happen. And that's how it is with a lot of the people that I've worked with or are working with now. They're just, they're like Olympic athletes, basically. And I think it's great. Like, I feel like we need each other. Not saying they can't write. They're all pretty good at writing too. It's just, it's like any team really, like, you know, you got to understand what it is that you do that no one else can do like you. And you got to understand what other people can do that nobody else can do like them and figure out how to utilize that in the best way possible where everybody is uh, stoked to be doing that thing that like gets them going. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, there's something to be said about the new Doth is a new lineup, but it still sounds like Doth. And it's very clear that the band sound is you. I appreciate that. I mean, like I was always writing the majority of this stuff. So I think anyone that's like curious about that, once they hear the new stuff, they're gonna be like, oh, okay, it's still the band. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say that like, oh, well, you just wrote another Doth record. It's, you know, No, it's fucking killer. There's a sound to Doth, you know? I, like, I don't know how to describe it, but you, you know, have like you think of Sepultura and like you know what that sound is. You think of Typo, you know what that sound is and it doesn't sound like anybody else. Doth has that too, you know? Like you have a very specific sound to what you do. I appreciate you saying so. To me, that's the most most important thing. Like it's like the, it's like the priority. Yeah, and it's like the hardest fucking thing to do, you know, like to <laughs> to be unique in a sea of millions is so hard, man, you know, and I feel like that's what everybody should be chasing more than anything, you know, like every time I do like panels or whatever else and, you know, people will ask questions like, well, how do I get my band noticed or whatever else to be like, find out what makes you unique. In the world, we know we've had a million thrash bands, we've had a million black metal bands, and you know they're just more and more every single day. What makes you unique? What makes you stand out? You know, I mean, I get pitched. It's it's unbearable actually how many bands I get pitched every week. You know, but I still listen just in case. But still, it's deafening to some degree how there's so much of the same thing going on. So when I hear something unique out there, it's it's like it's just refreshing. It's uh, it's noticeable and it makes a bigger impact, you know. And I don't know, like I I do think that's one of the hardest things to do, and I understand that as well. You know, you, it's really hard to create a new sound, or you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you have to bend it a certain way that makes it a little bit different than the next guy. You know, it's hard to do, but it's not impossible. And there's ways that you can get yourself closer to that without like, it's not this magical thing. It's a process of eliminating influences you don't want and focusing on the stuff that you love and really, really, really going deep with that. So for instance, you know, I went to Berkeley and stuff, but I hate jazz and I always hated jazz. I hate blues. Like, sorry, I just do. Like, I just have never been into that stuff. And I purposefully failed those classes. I did not want that polluting my sound. And I know how elitist 
that sounds, but like, I just had this idea that I still have that like anything you learn, anything you take in is going to come back out. (laughs) Just like food, like what you feed your brain musically is going to come through. So be very careful. Like if, if you want, if like you love jazz and you want that element, like Dave Davidson, he's great at that shit. Like, you know, cool. But he's not trying to love that. That's what he loves, you know, kind of like Ingve, like legitimately loves the stuff he does. Like find what it is that you love and lean into that. And then also lean into making writing a priority. And I think that if you actually like eliminate the things that you don't love and really focus on the things that you do love and you make it a priority to lean into those things, it's going to be a lot easier to have your own thing happening because your tastes are unique. Your personality is unique. So really you just have to get good at it. You have to get good at music. But like, if you really focus on what it is that you personally are all about, like you don't have the same taste as anybody else on earth. You don't have the same personality as anybody else on earth. So the, you've already got the the DNA for having your own sound. I mean, then again, there are quite a few people who don't have you know, very, uh, let's say distinct personalities, but everybody's got a unique personality. So it's there if you want it to be, but like, you have to like purposefully shut yourself off from stuff you don't want coming through. And I think also like if what you love is like super, super standard stuff, I mean, you know, you might be coming up with some super standard stuff too. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I want to start a band that's like half Godsmack and half Five Finger Death Punch. Your shit better be catchy as fuck if you're going to do that. (laughs) But even then, if that's what you're into, like, you're probably into really good vocal hooks if you're into those bands. Right, yeah. And again, like, you know, who are we to judge? Like, honestly, if you do what you do and you love it, that's what matters, you know? Uh, if you're trying to become a band that's going to sell records or get noticed or whatever else, then you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons, you know? Yeah. I always think success is something that happens accidentally on the way to you living your passion. That is a great way to put it. And I think that's a great place to cap off the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time, man. It's been a pleasure catching up. It has been forever. And thank you. Yeah, I can talk to you forever, man. Let's get together soon and... uh Well, hang. For sure, man. Thank you. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.